You're listening to the Data Point Podcast, brought to you by The Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. On May 28th, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won the runoff elections, extending his rule for another five years. Erdogan has been the president since 2003, and over the past 20 years, one of the tactics he's used to come to power and maintain it has been religion, and this happened in a country where popular politics previously maintained a largely secular flavor. Erdogan and his development party, which is known as the AKP in Turkish initials, used religious nationalism to create the new Islamic Turkey. Erdogan also made it a point to continue to crack down on political and civil liberties, arresting journalists and squashing opposition politicians. But he didn't necessarily have the smoothest time during this election. Even though his AKP coalition won a majority in parliament, Erdogan wasn't able to win in the first round of the election. These elections came against a turbulent economic backdrop. GDP grew significantly during Erdogan's first 10 years, but has since fallen. Inflation, which remained at relatively low levels between 2003 and 2020, has now shot up to 72%. And the Turkish lira, which has been depreciating over the years, is now at its lowest low in over a decade. To figure out how much of this is a result of Erdogan and his policies, and to understand the similarities between Turkey's trajectory and what we're seeing in India, is Satish Deshpande, a former professor of sociology at Delhi University. I want to start off with, you know, just taking a look at what the data shows. Can you sort of explain this economic background and how much of this is because of Erdogan's policies and how much of it is just, you know, a result of the world economy? Yes. Um, In the contemporary era, which would uh, be, let's say, the last 30 years or so, In a sense, there's no such thing as national economic policy. To a large extent, national economies are now integrated into a world economy. Mm -hmm. And the uh, latitude of decision-making, genuine decision-making, that can actually change things uh, is extremely narrow for most economies. Uh, In fact, all except a handful of economies Uh, this latitude is very, very limited. Uh, You might say that the US economy, the Chinese economy, and perhaps one or two other economies have more margin, uh, more uh, say on what their national policies, uh, Mm -hmm. how much uh, effect their national policies have. But everyone else, uh, including uh, India, tends to be a special case because it's a large economy and a poor one. Uh, so large in absolute terms, but uh, in terms of uh, you know economic weight, uh, not that very um, not that important. So we are a special case, but uh, considered against this background, um, it's pretty much you can find examples of every kind. You know you can find examples where uh, certain kinds of policies, certain kinds of governments have done well, appeared to do well economically, at least for a a specific period. And there are instances where the very same economic policies have resulted in 
more or less economic disasters of various magnitude. So there is no strict one-to-one relationship between types of regimes and economic fate of of a particular uh, you know particular economy. <clears throat> uh, but that said, I think in Turkey's particular case, going by what uh, you know critics are saying now, uh, it would seem that a fair share of the responsibility for Turkey's economic fortunes or the lack thereof um, would go to Erdogan's policies. And the main element that seems to come up and which is actually a, uh, a theme that, that gets repeated across, broadly speaking, authoritarian regimes across the world is uh, centralization of power in a single person so that policy making becomes so much more vulnerable to personal likes and dislikes and instabilities of that kind. And that is exactly what is being said about Turkey, that the um, disproportionate, the, the shift to a presidential form of rule and the disproportionate influence that one man, the president has on all policies, including economic policy, is detrimental to a sound climate, as it is said, for investment. And that's what is being said about Turkey now. Okay, so I think my next question will kind of just have you expand on this point. But we've also, of course, seen that civil liberties, political freedoms have been declining since Erdogan came to power. So what is that kind of relationship between declining civil liberties and then this decline in economic stability? How do the two kind of interact? And is there an outcome that, you know, maybe we aren't connecting between the two? Well, the standard line is that civil liberties, a free press and freedom of opinion, expression and so on, act as checks on the misuse of economic power. Uh, and that this is uh, something like, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a stretching an analogy, but I think in, in, uh, in conceptual terms, it helps to make things clear. This is uh, Amartya Sen's famous argument about uh, free press and um, um, and famines. That uh, certain parts of the world at certain times, uh, it is a established, well-researched, established fact that the ability to suppress information and the ability to suppress protests and so on allowed major human disasters like famines to occur, such as the 1942 famine in India during the uh, wartime colonial government um, simply suppressed news of this. So by that analogy, if people are free to talk about mistakes or bad things or uh, unforeseen developments or just plain corruption, then the chances are that it will get addressed. But if there is no room to speak of them, then you have the danger of a corruption becoming embedded becoming, in a sense, normalized. And this tends to happen with authoritarian regimes which, which are based not on a party but on a single individual party or other, other form of collective, but on a single individual, tend to be, on the whole, um, leaning towards what is broadly referred to as crony capitalism. That is to say, a few capitalists uh, who form a clique around this single all-powerful person uh, who then uh, effectively run the economy. 
and run the economy predictably according to their own uh, you know uh, agendas rather than what will benefit the economy so because of this risk there is seen to be a broad uh, connection between the presence of civil liberties and economic health in a, in a general in a general sense uh, and this is quite remarkable because um, broadly speaking again in the contemporary period economic thinking has tended to move rightwards and you would not normally expect it to be very sensitive to things like press freedom and so on but it is experience that has taught the right wing economists that it is good to have a free press that the nuisance value of what is perceived by the right wing as a nuisance value of a free press is far or outweighed by its acting as a watchdog as an as a check on crony capitalism can you maybe explain does erdogan fall into having you know that just one single power one single man type of persona just because i know he has the backing of the akp and that sort of comes from the muslim brotherhood so what is that how is that different how is he different i guess from take like kim jong un for example an extreme example but you know that's right. very obvious yeah a single right. Uh, right it this is a difficult question to answer because again there are so, there's such a wide variety of cases available you know uh, where you yeah. can again illustrate everything and its opposite has a you know has an example but by and large religious bases for politics makes for far less flexibility and therefore far more volatility in broad terms uh, particularly seen from the point of view of the economy than other types where uh, religion has the capacity to overcome economic rationality where you you are uh, you know encouraged to believe that your religious principles or the principles that are laid down by whoever you are following matter far more than self interest uh, you know the traditional basis on which econ- economies are supposed to work the rational individual maximizing her utility and so on those considerations are quite deliberately and explicitly set aside so that the field is open for uh, what would be called from an economic point of view irrational decision making and this has very strong legitimacy and it has the ability to withstand a lot of contrary evidence so in general religion based ideologies tend to last longer their hold tends to be stronger and their ability to be in denial of what are otherwise considered uh, you know very established precepts uh, in economics or other fields uh, is uh, is extreme they they are able to take very contrary stands and have them stick so for this reason i think to the extent, extent that erdogan represents a more or less um his his backing is more or less religious in 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 flavor uh, i i would say that he would fall into that that particular group unlike say uh, north korea or you know other uh, ideological regimes mm-hmm. um well you can say that religion is also an ideology of a kind but uh, making that distinction it is the world's most resilient form of ideology yeah iran is another example where uh, economic policy clearly took uh, the back seat relative to religious principles as were uh, advocated at that time mm-hmm. 
the uh, west asia you might say is an interesting exception to almost every kind of principle here but petroleum based money is a very special kind of money so i i guess that's that's they they are they're an exception for a reason <laughs> so um i i broadly speaking i would say that religious bases uh, uh a religion religion based regime tends to be far more uh, far have a, a far deeper uh, roots in terms of legitimacy in terms of its ability to go contrary to what the world is saying how does that kind of you know cost benefit analysis kind of play out i mean how long can someone can a leader ignore yes. you know the economic issues that a country has how long can they ignore yes. no matter how much suppression you know you try to you know have or how much you try to silence the press how much you try to squash protests there has to be some kind of breaking point where reality has to be faced right so right. at what point does that come and you know if you want to compare it to india especially because a lot of the same right things resonate here right so first let's take uh, you know the your your first question uh, of uh, you know how long can this continue such such a mismatch continue mm-hmm. and the answer is that we don't know because again there is there is a lot of variety of uh, examples available from from across the across the world a lot depends on the detail uh, so for example Uh, or or you know if you want to use an economic term uh, or at least a term that has been famous in economic theory uh, a lot depends on expectations and it depends on whether your economy is on the way down from being relatively up or whether it's on the way up from being relatively down at a given point of uh, time which influences which colors expectations your expectations about the future in comparison to a past that you have go- grown accustomed to that becomes a very you know a very potent uh, factor that influences which way things will go mm-hmm. so for example uh, if you compare turkey and india uh, you might say that turkey in in if you think of them as though they were individuals turkey would be in global terms uh, close to a middle class person whereas india would be at best collectively lower middle class emerging out of poverty so we are the indian economy is on its way up broadly speaking uh, and so the way up is generally brighter because the path that you're used to is worse and even a little bit of improvement is um, you know is helpful in in terms of expectations and in terms of how your how people's minds work and their tolerance levels things are harder if you are moving down mm-hmm. and if people are being made to give up things that they were used to uh and you might you might you can probably expect a backlash sooner you know the end of patience you know patience is such a colorless word you know in in that language uh we have uh, words like sabr in uh, hindustani or urdu Uh, yeah. which is has a much much more resonance uh, in in cultures like like ours where the ability to endure is what matters and that ability is shaped by the particular trajectory of the economy at a particular point of time the second thing of course is that when we speak of economies as though in the singular we are talking nonsense strictly speaking because there is no no such thing as a singular economy 
uh, and while this abstraction is necessary, is inevitable, we have to use those words and those abstractions. But we must still remember that all our economic indices are based on aggregation and averaging. Mm -hmm. And all averages necessarily conceal far more than what they reveal. That's their job, in fact. The job of an average is to reduce data. And while data reduction is helpful in terms of comprehension and in terms of compa comparison and so many other things, but at the same time, we have to remember that they conceal a lot. So the only way around it, since we can't do without averages, is to try and use as many different kinds of averages as we can. So for example, rate of growth of GDP is, I think, probably the single biggest culprit in uh, leading, leading to very fuzzy or wrong conclusions. Mm -hmm. Because what matters is the distribution of GDP. Uh, what matters is whether the country is, broadly speaking, dominated by very poor people, poor people, not people emerging from poverty, middle class people, etc., etc., right? It's the class composition of the country that matters. So that when you're using these abstractions, you still need to have some sense of what is underlying, you know, what, what is being concealed by these abstractions. Mm -hmm. The further you're able to look beyond these averages and indices, the more robust your analysis will be. Now let's come to the Turkey and India comparison. On the one hand, in terms of regimes, striking similarities. We have a very quick, probably uh, historically unprecedented, though that is debatable, swift move from broad-based systems of power, such as, say, a party-based system, where the party shrinks in importance relative to an individual. Uh, we saw an earlier instance of that with Indira Gandhi in the national emergency, but what we are seeing now has happened much quicker and far more effectively than in 1975. Uh, so that there is no question today that if you, if you were to compare uh, the relative influence or power of Mr. Modi and uh, the Bharatiya Janata Party, there is no comparison. Right. Uh, and everyone knows, including members of the BJP, know that there is no comparison. So this, there is, that is the same with uh, Mr. Erdogan uh, and the AKP. Yes, the AKP brought him to power and so on. And perhaps the AKP has more uh, staying power than the BJP. I'm not quite sure about that. But as of now, effectively, uh, it's these two individuals who matter and not the parties that have brought them to power. So that's one very big similarity. The second point I want to make is the appeal to religion though this is not exactly the same in both uh, cases, we also have in the background a religious appeal of some kind, or religious identities being invoked uh, of some kind, which taps into very deep popular reservoirs of both on the one hand, uh, as we said, things like sabr or the ability to endure, but also on the other hand of prejudices of various kinds, which are also very resilient and very... Um, uh, they are inoculated against uh, all forms of counter-argument uh, to, to a great degree. So we have that similarity. Um, we have uh, a third similarity, which is not, uh, you know, which is common to most economies, and that is uh, in being integrated into the world economy, even though India is a much larger economy than Turkey. Uh, the effective part of our economy that is integrated into the world is not 
so different from turkeys so given these we then have to compare the class structure of both countries and i think we have a lot more poverty in both uh, relative and absolute terms than there is in in uh, turkey but i think we also have a lot more wealth in india than there is in turkey uh, especially if you look at the last 20 years mm-hmm. so yeah. these are the broad kinds of similarities i don't think inequality in turkey is anywhere as as uh, bad i don't know the actual numbers um, but these are all the broad similarities and um, perhaps the biggest concrete similarity is the volatility of decision making that is introduced because of this this type of regime in both cases <clears throat> and we have um, as the most flagrant case in turkey's case the ironic or uh, it's actually far more than ironic um, turkey withdrawing from the istanbul convention on uh, violence against women and domestic violence which it was in the forefront of um having uh, having ratified in the european community so between 2012 and uh, 2021 um mr erdogan changed his mind and that meant uh, turkey uh, renounced a treaty that it had it was the first signatory to so uh, this is as as you know this has caused a lot of concern uh, also from economic point of view because this shows the uh, lack of uh, you know the rule of law and um, it raises constitutional issues as well can a single individual take a country out of an international treaty and the ar- uh, answer that turkey gives is yes it can and uh, we are um, in essentially the same situation where uh, the decision for demonetization is announced by the prime minister rather than the governor of the reserve bank uh, where all kinds of decisions are announced directly by the prime minister so that the role of parliament the low role of many other uh, of the of the bureaucracy of inst- other institutions uh which are supposed to be relatively autonomous of the state are um eroded mm-hmm. eroded to the point of uh having become irrelevant now uh and that is a very dangerous situation considered from an economic point of view uh now you can have a um honeymoon period if enough uh, if the stars align you know sufficiently and if there is if a country uh, or a leader enjoys sort of cosmic luck if you like uh, things can work out for no particular reason i mean for for nothing having to do with any deliberate decisions uh, on the other hand um, the stars are fickle so again you, they may not uh, the, the alignment may not work out and very bad things might happen so this is where the particular nature of the charisma of the leader comes into play uh is the charisma of the leader strong in the communities and classes and other segments of the country that are going to be the losers or the winners in the economic changes that is what starts to matter mm-hmm. 
so for example against all predictions based on past political experience demonetization and the untold economic suffering it caused to the lowest uh, segment of our economy the most vulnerable segments of our economy was um, did not prove to be beyond the ability to endure of people uh, and the popularity of mr modi for that segment was such that they were able to endure the undoubted hardship that they were enduring for a long time uh, without losing their uh, adoration of mr modi mm-hmm. so that is a historical fact but that doesn't mean that the same thing will happen every time something similar happens because other things are also changing so uh, the same for mr erdogan uh, now it depends i don't know enough about turkey to be able to say which particular segments is he popular with and uh, so on but that's the kind of investigation that is needed that's the kind of um, examination we need to make as to disaggregate the country disaggregate the economy and look at the relationship between a charismatic leader and different segments and then try to make sense of what might happen how do these leaders sort of create this level of you know a cult like persona get this cult like following behind them especially if they're able to do this without having to rely so much on their party the way that modi the way that erdogan have done so again i'm uh, i i don't know enough about turkey uh, yeah. but in the indian case it's actually i think it's going to be researched for decades uh, it's the relationship between this government and in, in particular uh, i should say regime rather than government because that's probably a more accurate term and the media uh, i have not seen and um, you know um, the degree of control um, that is exerted now over the media without any legal basis unlike the emergency which was a uh, you know it seems a very innocent compared to today where the government actually said civil liberties are suspended press freedom is suspended you cannot by law here is this ordinance which says that you cannot publish anything unless the censor approves it so the rule of law was followed i mean the constitution was uh, appended but there was a law technically uh, it yes, was followed yes yes uh, there is no law today and yet the um, degree to which the media follows the desires and wishes sometimes even the unstated desires of the regime is incredible it's without precedent i think in 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 our in ind- independent india's history now that is a very big thing and uh, particularly the electronic media which has become um, at this term military term is being used this force multiplier and uh, the electronic media has been uh, has been central to the rise to power and it is central it is proving central in different ways to staying in power and perhaps there is something similar in turkey i don't know 
So I'm not able to say whether the same thing, but this is what jumps out at you about the Indian case. That is the uh, relationship between the media and the regime. Such a close relationship as has not been seen in our history. That's it for this week's episode, but I'll be back soon to break down the next big data story. You can listen to this podcast on all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also check out all of our data stories at thehindu.com slash data. Thanks for listening.